Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Ukrainian forces refusing to surrender in the port city of Mariupol. Russia gives another ultimatum, while the Pentagon says bigger U.S. weapons will arrive in Ukraine soon. The Justice Department says it will appeal a recent court ruling to lift the mask mandate, but only if the CDC makes the recommendation. Delta Airlines pilots are protesting the airline's scheduling practices. They say they are being expected to pick up record amounts of overtime flying on their days off. Who has Hunter Biden's laptop? Apparently, House Republicans do. Congressman Darrell Issa said they have the laptop and are investigating, though Hunter Biden has denied any wrongdoing in his business dealings. A pocket of Ukrainian resistance is holding on for dear life in the port city of Mariupol. Russia gave them a new ultimatum to surrender by this afternoon. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. The situation in Mariupol is, quote, critical, according to a Ukrainian Marine commander in the city Tuesday. They ignored another Russian ultimatum to surrender. He said this may be their last statement. We might have only a few days or even hours left. The enemy's units are 10 times larger than ours. They have supremacy in the air, artillery, and units that are dislocated on the ground, equipment, and tanks. We appeal to the world leaders to help us. The commander asked that a third country help evacuate troops and civilians who were trapped in a steel plant under heavy Russian bombardment. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said the situation in Mariupol is brutal and unchanged. Russian troops block any attempts to organize humanitarian corridors and save people, our people, the local residents who are at the hands of the occupiers. Moscow's denied targeting civilians. Russia intensified its attacks in the east on Tuesday, prompting Western governments to pledge more arms and sanctions. The Pentagon said 18 U.S. howitzers will be transported very soon. We know where they're coming from. Um, it's really just a matter now of uh, uh, getting them packaged up and, and getting them on the way. The U.S. estimates the Russian military has lost about 25 percent of the combat power it sent into Ukraine. But Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says Russian leader Vladimir Putin still has a lot of inventory available. Some of it's been depleted. Um, some of it's been destroyed. Some of it's been captured. But he still has a lot of combat capability available to him. Um, uh, and I think it's important for us to just remember that. The United Nations says more than 5 million people have fled Ukraine since Russia invaded in late February. As the conflict drags on, it's unclear when the refugees might return or what shape their homes will be in. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. In southeastern Ukraine, solving the lack of water has become a priority for the people trying to survive in the port city of Mariupol. Damaged buildings, empty streets, sadness and frustration on the faces of people living here. After weeks under siege, destruction and desolation are taking their toll on citizens remaining in Mariupol. They need to quickly fix the water supply problem. How can we live without water? It's horrible. Russia claims it has almost completely seized the city. 
but Ukraine's defense minister disputes this claim, saying while the situation is extremely difficult, Mariupol is not under full Russian control. To be honest, we are not well. I have mental problems after airstrikes, that's for sure. I'm really scared. When I hear a plane, I just run away. For Russia, capturing the city has a strategic advantage. It's the main port in the Donbas region, and it connects territory held by pro-Russian separatists in the east with the Crimea region that Russia annexed in 2014. Close to 1,000 civilians are hiding in underground shelters beneath the Azovstal steel plant, according to the city council. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Russian players will not be allowed to compete at Wimbledon this year due to Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. That's according to a report in sports industry news site Sportico. Tennis players from Russia and Belarus will not be allowed to compete at this year's Wimbledon due to Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. That's according to a statement today from the All England Lawn Tennis Club, the Grand Slam's organizer. A ban on Russian players would prevent world number two Daniil Medvedev and Andrei Rublev, ranked eighth, from competing in the men's draw. Tennis governing bodies banned Russia and Belarus from international team competitions following the invasion. Individual players are allowed to compete on tours, but not under the name or flag of their countries. Ukrainian and Turkish soccer teams are raising awareness about the war in Ukraine. They held their third charity game in Istanbul on Tuesday. The club organized a tour in several countries to support Ukrainian refugees as Russian forces continued bombing their country. Ukrainian players came onto the field with Ukrainian flags tied on their shoulders. They were wearing T-shirts showing four-year-old Alyssa, who was hiding from Russian attacks in a Mariupol bomb shelter. The team's captain and goalkeeper said the main goal of the charity tour was to spread awareness of the situation in Ukraine and gain support against Russia. According to the UN, the latest numbers show about 4.9 million refugees have fled Ukraine since February 24th. As many as 150,000 people are believed to be left in the besieged city of Mariupol. And coming up, sheriff's deputies find an autistic 19-year-old who disappeared from his family's home in California nearly three years ago. And a woman in Idaho is given a not guilty plea by a judge after she refused to speak in court. Her charges are linked to the death of her children, her estranged husband, and a lover's wife. We'll have all that and more for you here on NTD News. The court ruling to end the mask mandate on public transit has many travelers excited, but the Justice Department may appeal that decision. Here's more on that story. In a statement, the Justice Department announced it will appeal the court ruling that overturned the federal government's mask mandate for travelers. That's if the CDC concludes that mask wearing on public transportation is necessary for public health. The Biden administration recently extended the travel mandate through May 3rd, meaning masks were still needed on planes, trains, buses, and inside airports. However, numerous airlines and public transit systems made masking optional after a federal judge ruled Monday that the requirement was unlawful. Many travelers say they appreciate the freedom of not having to wear masks after two years. I just want to scream and tell everybody, take those masks off. Enjoy life. Breathe. And I'm so glad. This is adding to my pleasure of flying again. So we're very happy about this. It felt a little bit like a taste of normal, and it was a lot more comfortable and a lot more pleasant. I feel like 
the mask should have been gone a long time ago, at least last year. You know, I think we're just extending it and extending it for no reason. In cities like New York City, Chicago, and Los Angeles, the mask mandate remains in place for mass transit. And some passengers still feel the need for such protection. Well, I personally liked flying with a mask while everything was going on um, with throughout the pandemic. So I was wearing my mask today and I was, will continue wearing it for a little bit longer. I don't have a problem with it. Uh, I wear it for my benefit, uh, for my health purpose. So I'm, I don't have a problem with the, the mask mandate. I'm feeling pretty neutral about it. I'm continuing to wear my mask in um, heavily populated areas uh, just because the last time everything lifted and then everybody got sick again and it came back in a big surge. And some feel the court's reversal of the mandate creates a confusing patchwork of rules that vary by city and mode of transportation. I mean, it's, it's like Swiss cheese. I mean, like, um, there's no uniformity and it seems pretty laissez-faire. I think I heard that it was because of a judgment down in Florida and I was confused why that would suddenly happen now and wasn't the case three months ago or six months ago or a year ago. So we really don't know what's happening. We didn't have time to figure out this morning, but we're keeping it on a little bit. Sometimes we might be confused of what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. But I guess what we're supposed to do is just keep a mask in our pocket and put it on and take it off or <laughs> while the CDC and the Department of Justice are considering their next steps passengers are free to go maskless depending on local requirements the Supreme Court has rejected an appeal from an Air Force officer who refused the COVID vaccine Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Dunn was removed from his post for not being vaccinated despite seeking a religious exemption he also says he has natural immunity after testing positive for COVID-19 last year Dunn argued that the Pentagon had violated both federal law and his constitutional rights. California's federal court then rejected his request to keep his job, and the U.S. Court of Appeals declined to hear the case. Then he turned to the U.S. Supreme Court. The lawsuit argues that Dunn would not present a danger to other service members. It says before the Air Force and other military branches reach their current vaccination rate, thousands of asymptomatic service members have deployed and served domestically over the past two years. Since the Pentagon imposed mandatory vaccination, religious exemptions in all branches of the armed forces have been hard to come by. A group of pilots for Delta Airlines is picketing outside the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. They're protesting the airline's scheduling practices, which they say have caused them to fly long and fatiguing trips. Here are the details. More than 100 off-duty Delta Airlines pilots silently marched in small groups outside Seattle-Tacoma International Airport in SeaTac, Washington State on Tuesday. This is the fifth of six cities that Delta pilots have picketing events planned across the U.S. We're out here to uh, visibly take our message to Delta management that they need to address our fatiguing and poor quality schedules. We would like to engage them on common sense solutions to, uh, to improve the lives of our members. Captain Jason Ambrosi, chair of Delta Pilots Master Executive Council of the Airline Pilots Association, explains what the problem is. Delta has all the planes they had from the pre-pandemic, however, they don't have the same amount of pilots as they had. So they're bringing back flying at a rate that exceeds the amount of pilots we currently have. So uh, our pilots are, are being uh, expected to pick up record amounts of overtime flying on their off days to, to fly the current schedule. And that allows that, uh, that there's no buffer in the system. The CEO of Delta Airlines said last week, quote, 
The demand environment that we have today is at a historic high. The last five weeks have been the strongest period of bookings that Delta has ever seen in our history. All I can say is that uh, uh, in the post-COVID uh, environment that we're bringing back flying as fast as Delta is, that they are bringing back flying at a rate that exceeds the amount of pilots we have, and, and we want them to work with us on solutions regarding uh, the poor quality and fatiguing schedules. Delta Airlines reacted to the picketing, saying in a statement that this informational exercise by some of our off-duty pilots did not disrupt our operation for our customers. We continuously evaluate our staffing models and plan ahead so that we can recover quickly when unforeseen circumstances arise. Representative Darrell Issa said that House Republicans have Hunter Biden's laptop. And he said in the meantime, they're investigating. Issa described the findings on the laptop as a treasure trove. He went on to say that a special prosecutor will be needed. That's so they can look into allegations about Biden's business dealings in countries including China. ISA said the laptop is a direct communication between President Joe Biden and his son, a good dive into how sick and vulnerable Hunter Biden was, and some of the things he did. He also said there were photos in the hard drive that allegedly show a drug stash belonging to the younger Biden. Hunter Biden has denied any wrongdoing in his business dealings, though he has admitted publicly to having a drug problem. President Biden has completely denied that his son engaged in any improper business arrangements, and the president maintains he had no knowledge or communication about any deals. ISA pointed to a couple of business deals that went forward for Hunter Biden. Those include one between the wife of Moscow's former mayor and one with China while he was struggling with substance abuse. Hunter Biden is the suspected owner of the laptop that the FBI seized. That was after Hunter Biden left it for repairs at a shop in Delaware in 2019. The New York Post first reported on the laptop's existence in October 2020. That was right before the general election for president. Big tech companies like Twitter and Facebook tried to prevent people from seeing the article, and Twitter also locked the outlet's account for over two weeks. But Hunter Biden's business dealings were brought up in the second debate between Trump and Biden. Last month, Congressman Issa told news outlets that he spoke to big tech companies, White House aides, and former U.S. officials about the New York Post story. Issa requested records and documents from them and wanted to know whether the article was artificially suppressed online before the election. Midterm primaries are just around the corner for many states. Oregon, for example, will hold its primaries on May 17th. But the Democratic primary there is not without some controversy. Democrats running for the new House seat there that came after the 2020 census are speaking out. They're taking issue with a super PAC associated with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi for trying to pick favorites in this competitive primary. But what are Republicans doing to stay competitive? Answering this is U.S. House candidate from Oregon, Angela Plowhead. Um, I think we need to do a few things. I think um, here in Oregon anyway, we have a, a large percentage of our voters who are unaffiliated, and which means that we need to be talking to them. We need to be encouraging them to either register for a party or to at least get out and vote. So I think that's where a lot of our focus has to be. Um, obviously not in the primaries. In the primaries, you know, we're obviously talking to our base. But uh, because here in Oregon, we have closed primaries. Um, but definitely for the... 
uh, general election, we have to be talking to the unaffiliated voters. Um, here in Oregon, they've done some uh, scientific studies, and they have found that about 70% of them are actually very conservative in their values. And so that gives us a decided edge over the progressive party here in Oregon. And let's look on a national scale. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has said that the GOP is not being overconfident in their expectation to take the House this year. Do you think Democrats can hold their majority? No. And why is that? They've really overstepped. They've overstepped in a lot of ways. They've overstepped with the mandates. They've overstepped with what they've done with schools. Um, they've overstepped with um, allowing crime to just go unchecked. And people are tired of it. President Biden's approval rating hit a low in February before the invasion. But afterwards, according to a Marist poll, it gained about five points. Do you think this will help Democrats' chances? I don't, because since then, it's actually fallen again. So, you know... We've, we've seen so many missteps with our intelligence and with how we've encountered um, our foreign policy. And so, you know, I was an intelligence analyst in the Air Force. This is an area that I'm pretty well versed in. And so watching what happened in Afghanistan was such a failure and people were very upset about it. Not that we left, but in how we left. And then, you know, to follow that up with what's happened in Russia and Ukraine and for our intelligence community to get it so wrong is really just kind of unforgivable. And with our president, again, handing out our national intelligence secrets to China this time. So, you know, I think we really are in a bad place when it comes to what's happening with our DOD, what's happening with um, our intelligence community. And we need people in office that have an understanding of those things and are able to actually make some changes there. A 19-year-old who disappeared from his family's home in California nearly three years ago has been found in Utah. His discovery is bringing relief to his parents, who feared they would never see him again. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. You look like you're shivering. Connor Jack Oswalt was shivering and cold when sheriff's deputies came across him Saturday outside a convenience store in Summit County. We're, over, we're overwhelmed with joy and gratitude. It's the biggest blessing in the world in existence, in fact. I mean, what are the odds of that happening? <laughs> his family had searched for him for years. They even moved back to the town of his birth, Idaho Falls, hoping he would eventually make it back there. Think of something or someone that you've lost and that you've grieved and that you thought you'd never see again, and then they just poof into existence. Oswald has been diagnosed with autism and other mental health conditions and was 17 when he left the family's home in Clear Lake, California. The exact circumstances of his disappearance and whereabouts over the last two years are under investigation. When the Flints first got the call, they worried their son had been found dead. You know, and then we call, say, this is Summit County Sheriff's Office. Their hearts sank. They thought this was it. They, they believed that this was the call that they had dreaded ever receiving. And we said, we, we believe we have Connor Jack, um, and he's alive. His family is hoping to bring him back home soon. But a judge has ordered Oswalt released from custody, and his parents worry he could disappear again. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A woman charged with conspiring to kill her children and her estranged husband refused to enter a plea to murder and other charges. Her silence prompted an Idaho judge to enter a not guilty plea on her behalf. Lori Daybell and current husband Chad Daybell face numerous charges in the case. 
Lori's case was delayed for months while she underwent mental health treatment. The charges are in connection with the death of Lori Daybell's 7-year-old and 16-year-old children, as well as Chad Daybell's first wife. Lori is also charged with conspiring to kill her former estranged husband with the help of her now-deceased brother. Chad Daybell pleaded not guilty to the charges months ago. Lori Daybell opted to stand silent when she was asked to enter a plea to the charges. The judge told her she could face the death penalty or life in prison if convicted. He entered a not guilty plea on her behalf. In Colorado, the district attorney is asking to drop the charges in a missing woman case. A man is about to go on trial in the presumed death of his missing wife. Barry Morphew pleaded for the help funding Suzanne Morphew after she disappeared and was reported missing on Mother's Day in 2020. But last year, he was arrested and charged with murder and other crimes. The dismissal request follows the judge's decision to bar prosecutors from presenting key witnesses during the trial. That's because they repeatedly failed to follow rules for turning over evidence in his favor. The evidence included DNA found in Suzanne Morphew's SUV. That DNA was from an unknown male linked to sexual assault cases in other states. It raises the possibility of another suspect being involved. In a court filing, the district attorney said she asked to dismiss the charges in part because some of the prosecution's witnesses were excluded. The request still awaits the judge's approval. A motion to reduce bond for the parents of Michigan school shooting suspect Ethan Crumbly has been denied. Jennifer and James Crumbly had requested that their bonds be lowered from half a million dollars to $100,000 each. Circuit Court Judge Cheryl Matthews said Tuesday that the Crumbly's actions leading up to their arrest make the current bond appropriate. The parents were arrested days after the November 30th shooting in a Detroit warehouse, where it was a manhunt after the Crumbly's failed to show up at their court for their initial arraignment. Jennifer and James Crumbly have pleaded not guilty to charges of involuntary manslaughter. Prosecutors accuse them of giving their son easy access to a gun and disregarding signs that he was a threat before the shooting at Oxford High School. A Tennessee death row inmate's request for clemency was denied Tuesday, despite new DNA evidence that he says could help his case. 72-year-old Oscar Smith was sentenced to death for the 1989 murders of his estranged wife, Judah Smith, and her two minor sons. Smith's legal team in a filing wrote that unknown DNA was found on the murder weapon that did not match Smith's. They say the evidence proves that he did not handle the murder weapon and asked the court to stay the execution until new evidence is heard. The state responded, asking the judge to deny the order and argued that new DNA evidence does not mean Smith is innocent. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee issued a statement Tuesday saying that after an extensive review of the case, the state's sentence will stand and he will not intervene. Smith is scheduled to be executed on Thursday. A parolee who murdered 81-year-old philanthropist Jacqueline Avant has been sentenced to 190 years in a California prison. Ariel Maynard was sentenced Tuesday in Los Angeles Superior Court for shooting Avant and trying to kill a security guard during a burglary attempt at her Beverly Hills home. The Los Angeles District Attorney said he accepted a plea deal because he did not want the family to go through the trauma of a trial. Police were called to Avant's home early in the morning on December 1st. They found Avant bleeding from a gunshot wound to the back. 
Maynard was arrested later that morning after breaking into a Hollywood Hills home and accidentally shooting himself in the foot. Coming up, a San Quentin prison education program receives college accreditation after a review board determines it meets certain educational standards. Find out more in just a minute here on NTD News. Firefighters faced strong winds and bone-dry conditions on Tuesday as they battled a rapidly growing wildfire in central Arizona. The fire has already driven thousands of residents from their homes. The blaze, dubbed the Tunnel Fire, covered an area of about 6,000 acres as it sped northeast, 14 miles north of Flagstaff, Arizona. The fire forced more than 2,000 residents from 760 homes in Coconino County. Officials say the fire has destroyed 24 structures and threatened to destroy hundreds more. The National Weather Service says firefighters will face a day of wind gusts of 30 miles an hour and very dry air. Arizona is suffering an early start to its fire season. Officials say dry grass and brush, along with scattered pine, are fueling the fire. Actor Johnny Depp testified on Tuesday that he never struck his ex-wife, Amber Heard. He is challenging her accusations in a $50 million defamation case. Nothing, nothing of the kind had ever happened. Actor Johnny Depp took the witness stand on Tuesday in his defamation case against ex-wife Amber Heard, calling her claims that he physically abused her, quote, heinous and disturbing. But never did I myself reach the point of um, uh, striking misheard in any way, nor have I ever struck uh, um, any woman um, in my life. Depp, speaking softly and slowly for nearly three hours, said in a Virginia courtroom that it was a complete shock when Heard accused him six years ago of becoming violent during their relationship. He said it was important to set the record straight, not just for himself, but also his two children from a previous relationship who were in high school at the time. I felt it my responsibility to uh, to stand up not only for myself um, in that instance, but stand up for my children. It's very strange when one day you're uh, Cinderella, so to speak, and then in 0.6 seconds you're Quasimodo. Depp is suing Heard for $50 million, alleging she defamed him when she wrote a December 2018 opinion piece in the Washington Post about being a survivor of domestic abuse. Attorneys for Heard have argued that she told the truth and that her opinion was protected as free speech under the First Amendment. Depp admitted to taking drugs, which included an opiates addiction he said he has kicked, but claimed Tuesday that Heard, quote, grossly embellished his substance abuse. Heard watched his testimony with little expression, occasionally jotting notes. Less than two years ago, Depp lost a libel case against The Sun, a British tabloid that labeled him a wife-beater. A London High Court judge ruled he had repeatedly assaulted Heard and put her in fear for her life. For decades, inmates at San Quentin State Prison have been taking literature, pre-calculus, and other higher education classes. 
But as of this year, they will also be students of a community college now that the prison's college program has been accredited. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. The designation came after the 19-member board reviewed the program and determined it met certain educational standards. On page 72, the instructors are volunteers from prestigious Bay Area colleges like UC Berkeley. The community college is believed to be the first in the U.S. with a campus inside a prison. I think now with having one accepted accredited college, all of a sudden more people might be more open to the idea of like, hey, what if we try this revolutionary idea somewhere else? So I think that it, uh, the future looks hopeful for higher education in prisons. Formerly known as the Prison University Project at Patton University, the school has provided free education to San Quentin inmates for 25 years. Its offerings include an associate's degree program and a college preparatory program. They're not just giving you an education, they're, they're giving you hope. You know, they're giving these individuals up in here hope. You know, we're in a place where it's basically hopeless. Accreditation means the school is independent, and the college can now focus on improving the quality of instruction, expanding student support services, and increasing access to technology and library resources. So initially when we decided to pursue accreditation, it was because we wanted to be independent and not subject to the ups and downs of another institution. But once we embarked on the process, we realized there were huge advantages um, to becoming independent and independently accredited. The accreditation designation also makes it easier for students to prepare to transfer to other colleges when they're no longer incarcerated. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Just ahead, Australia has its first leaders' debate for the 2022 election. Both the current prime minister and his rival spoke about the threat of China in the Pacific. And YouTube has closed the account of John Lee, Hong Kong's sole candidate in next month's leadership election. The company says it's following U.S. sanctions laws. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. Australia's leading candidates went head-to-head -head in their first leadership debate. Both Prime Minister Scott Morrison and his opposition rival cited the current threat from China. That China has changed in the last five years, in particular, and we've had to significantly increase our investment in our intelligence services, okay. our defence forces, and it's a very important issue, Kieran, and you've raised it. It's a very important issue, and I'm sure the Labor Party would agree, but what I don't understand is that when something of this significance takes place, why would you take China's side? The truth is that we all know that China has changed. China has changed its posture. It's more aggressive, it's more active in the region, and we need to understand that and respond to it. This debate follows the signing of a security agreement between China and the Solomon Islands. The agreement has raised concerns about China's naval presence in the islands, which are about 1,200 miles off Australia's northeastern coast. Australia's Labour Party has described the agreement as the country's worst foreign policy failure in the Pacific since the end of World War II. But the Prime Minister suggested his opponents should criticize China rather than the current government. The Labour Party has led the government in most opinion polls in recent months, but the party has also been accused of not being strong enough on China. It's been a month since the crash of the China Eastern airliner, and investigations are still ongoing. Chinese officials say the plane's black boxes were severely damaged. 
One month ago, the Boeing 737-800 suddenly plunged from cruising altitude into the mountains of China's Guangxi province. All 132 people on board were killed. China's Civil Aviation Administration says it has completed a preliminary accident report but did not make public any information recovered from the flight recorders. Early findings show no problems with flight procedures. The flight crew was qualified, the aircraft was properly maintained, the weather was good, and there was no hazardous material on the plane before the crash. That leaves the cause of the crash a mystery. The two black boxes, a flight data recorder and a cockpit voice recorder, were sent to Washington for analysis. Authorities are still determining the cause of the accident as they try to recover and analyze the data. One aviation expert says it could take a year to glean clues from the black boxes. YouTube has blocked the account of John Lee, Hong Kong's number two official and the only candidate running in the city's leadership election next month. Alphabet, who owns YouTube, said the move was in accordance with U.S. sanctions laws. And Facebook owner Meta Platforms says it has taken steps to prevent Lee's use of payment services on Facebook and Instagram, though he can still maintain a non-monetized presence. In response, Lee said these measures won't affect his bid to lead Hong Kong for the next five years. Lee was the city's former deputy commissioner of police and secretary for security. He rose to the number two official in Hong Kong by pushing for the Beijing-imposed national security law in Hong Kong. During the city's pro-democracy movements, he earned the support of the Chinese Communist Party through violent arrests of protesters and a crackdown on free media. Lee is currently under U.S. sanctions for restricting freedom in the city, along with other Hong Kong and Chinese officials. And coming up, trials kicked off in Belgium for 14 people suspected of assisting the terrorist attacks in Paris in 2015. Prosecutors say some of the suspects helped attackers travel to Syria or supplied them with arms. And a courtroom artist depicts the trial of 2015 Paris attacks. She takes the place of the camera and shows the public what's happening in court. All that and more right here on NTD News. British judge sent the case of Julian Assange to Interior Minister Priti Patel. She will decide whether the WikiLeaks founder should be extradited to the United States. The procedural step was announced at a hearing in central London. It followed a March decision to deny Australian-born Assange an appeal to his extradition. The extradition order must now be signed by Patel, after which Assange can challenge the decision. Julian Assange is wanted in the United States on 18 criminal charges, including breaking a spying law. That's after WikiLeaks published thousands of secret U.S. files in 2010. He denies any wrongdoing. Assange has been in Southeast London jail since 2019, and before that was holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in the British capital for seven years. Fourteen people are on trial in Belgium for allegedly helping Islamic terrorists carry out the bomb attacks that killed 130 people in Paris in 2015. Here are the details. A trial kicked off in Brussels on Tuesday for 13 men and one woman accused of supporting ISIS terrorists before their attacks in Paris on November 13, 2015. 
They are also accused of helping one attacker who survived the attacks and returned to Brussels. Nine of the suspects were present at the trial. Two suspects are believed to have died in Syria. So here you have a number of people, 14 to be exact, who are being prosecuted, who are being suspected of having provided assistance before or after the Paris attacks. So the stakes of the trial will obviously be to determine the extent to which they did or did not provide assistance, the nature of that assistance and the sentence that could be imposed upon them. Twelve of the suspects face charges of leading a terrorist group or participating in terrorist activities. They could face up to 15 years in prison. Prosecutors say the suspects helped attackers travel to Syria or supplied them with arms. There are obviously quite different states from the Paris trial, since in the Paris criminal trial, it is the people who are directly involved in the attacks. Here, the accused are suspected of having provided assistance before or after, for example, helping people to go to Syria or providing false documents or being linked to weapons that may or may not have been used. These are all issues that obviously need to be addressed. Some of the suspects are accused of secretly housing a main suspect in the attacks. The man hid in Brussels for four months until his capture. Two of the group face non-terrorist charges, one for having supplied false documents to those involved in the Paris attacks, and the other is accused of handling arms and explosive material. Hearings are scheduled to run until May 20th, with rulings expected by the end of June. Court artists depict courtroom events in lieu of cameras and capture emotions in their drawings to inform the public. As the trial for the November 2015 Paris attacks is underway, we hear more details about the hearings from a courtroom sketch artist. A French courtroom artist gazed into the eyes of a defendant, making quick strokes with her watercolor brush. Just a few feet next to her was Selah Abdeslam, the sole living member of the terrorist who killed 130 people in the 2015 Paris attacks. The deep-set eyes of Abdeslam are something. And you have this gaze that is very deep, very intense, which is quite scary as well. And that's what you need to recreate with the paintbrush. De Porcari recalled capturing an emotional moment during the first day of the historical trial. That was when Abdeslam defiantly declared himself a soldier of ISIS after removing his black mask. She described the calculated demeanor of the 31-year-old who expressed no remorse for the violence six years ago. When the presiding judge gave him a chance to speak, he had prepared his speech. It was formal. He thought about it. We could really hear the tone of his voice. It was reasoned, thought through in advance. He knew what he was going to say beforehand, and it was bordering on icy. As the trial went on for weeks, both the artist and the defendant grew accustomed to each other's presence. De Porquerie said the French Moroccan would nod to her at the beginning of each hearing. During the 10-hour court sessions each day, she would sketch up to seven drawings for TV news bulletins. It's a grueling task, hunched in the same position for hours, focused on the emerging sketch, but wary of missing a brief moment that defines the day's hearing. Physically, your body is just oriented towards what you're doing. It's in the same position all the time. So after 10 hours sitting like this, when you try to move like this, you feel all your bones cracking. De Porquerie had sketched 150 trials, including that of the Islamic militants who attacked the satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo in early 2015. 
The inaugural trial of a court established to prosecute war crimes in the Central African Republic's drawn-out conflict was postponed on its first day when lawyers for defendants did not show up. The three men on trial were dressed in bright orange prison uniforms for the hearing. They are accused of war crimes and crimes against humanity in relation to the massacre of 46 civilians in May 2019. Prosecutors say the three are members of a rebel group. The exact reason the defendant's lawyers failed to show up was unclear. The president of the Central African League for Human Rights says the no-show was over a dispute about the treatment of the defendants. The case is being heard in a special court set up in 2015 to try crimes committed in wartime. It is seen as a milestone for the Central African Republic. A decade-long conflict between government forces and rebels has forced more than one million people to flee the country. The trial will resume April 25th. Rescue teams searched for bodies washed away in a South African province after horrific floods devastated the area and killed at least 448 people. In an informal settlement 10 miles from Durban, officers were seen digging through rubble and mud with sniffer dogs searching for two missing people. Torrential rain last week triggered floods and mudslides, leaving thousands homeless and knocking out power and water services and disrupted operations in Durban, one of Africa's busiest ports. Thousands of soldiers have been deployed to the province to assist with rescue missions and transporting aid. Some were seen patrolling an airport base in Durban. The floods are among the worst to have hit this particular province in its recorded history. They damaged more than $674 million of infrastructure. The government has declared a national state of disaster. Dozens of people are still missing, and search and rescue missions continue, although the chances of finding people are shrinking. Peru's national police announced they seized more than five tons of drugs during operations across the country since March 25th. Weapons and chemical supplies used to develop certain drugs were also found and confiscated. The director of the National Police's Anti-Drug Division said these drugs are valued at their production places at approximately $3,400,000. Regardless, depending on their final destination, like for example Europe, they can have a value of approximately $140 million. According to the authorities, during 2022, Peruvian police have carried out about 4,400 operations during which they have detained nearly 1,000 people, dismantled 25 criminal organizations, and seized nearly 17 tons of drugs. Just ahead, eight parks around the world are joining the list of UNESCO-designated global geoparks. They are recognized for their geological heritage. All that and more right here on NTD News. A zoo in Mexico is giving animals ice-cold popsicles to help them battle the heat. An official says biologists and veterinarians can also observe the animal's conduct and make health-related decisions. Jaguars, tigers, and monkeys received a cold surprise to help them cope with the high temperatures of up to 100 degrees Fahrenheit that are plaguing the southern Mexican city of Meridia. Zoo workers at the Amaraya Zoo prepared popsicles made specially to fit the needs of each species. Jaguars enjoyed popsicles made from rabbit meat or chicken and frozen blood with water. The treats hung from trees so the animals could play with them, encouraging physical activity. 
Yucatan black holler monkeys and spider monkeys received popsicles made from fruit and juice. Mud and water pits were excavated into certain enclosures, such as the tiger's habitat, so the animals could take a dip and freshen up. The United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO, has designated eight new global geoparks in the world. The parks are in Finland, Sweden, Greece, Romania, Germany, Luxembourg, and Brazil. Let's take a look. UNESCO just designated eight parks around the world as the latest global geoparks. There are 177 geoparks in 46 countries. UNESCO says they recognize the parks for their geological heritage of international significance. Basically, with that one and same uh, endeavor just to celebrate their unique um, geological heritage, as we call it, their unique landscapes, the geological unique sites that they are living on, to celebrate this and to see how they can make an income out of this as well. And, and very often this is uh, through uh, geotourism uh, and, and local entrepreneurship. One of the new geoparks is in the south of Finland. It's distinct for its stunning lakes and forests. Another new geopark is in western Greece. It's an island complex known for its caves, sinkholes and underground streams. You may have heard about the biosphere reserves of the world heritage. But the geological heritage was also was always something that was a little bit, um, how would I say, it was, was not well considered under these programs and has in the last years uh, gotten a lot of interest. One of the new geoparks is in Romania. It contains a wealth of fossils and some of the longest and deepest salt caves in the world. Another new geopark is in Sweden. It contains 15 flat-topped table mountains and Sweden's first known stone church, which was built by Vikings in the early 11th century. UNESCO says the designation process is an extensive one. Parks have to meet all the different criteria and there are very clear statues and guidelines. These sites uh, have now been, the eight ones that you've referred to, they have been recognized for a period of four years, but every four years it will have to go through a similar process just to make sure that they keep up with the, uh, with the standards. Two parks in Brazil also got the geopark designation. One of them is known for its vibrant and verdant forests and canyons. It also has one of the world's richest ecosystems. Something shocking is coming to New York City, an all-electric building. J.P. Morgan Chase announced its new global headquarters, located on Park Avenue, will be fully powered by renewable energy. Officials say the tower will have net-zero operational emissions, partly by using power that comes from a state hydroelectric plant. Other green features include triple-glazed windows and systems that store and reuse water, which should reduce consumption by around 40%. There will also be air filtration systems, indoor greenery, and touchless technology. The nearly 60-story skyscraper is scheduled to be completed by 2025. Extra virgin olive oil has a long history and many benefits for health. Let's hear more from Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Extra virgin olive oil has many benefits for our health. Numerous studies validate this. Women who ate a Mediterranean diet, which included extra virgin olive oil, had a 62% lower risk of breast cancer. That was compared to women who were advised to eat a low-fat diet. 
There's also evidence that extra virgin olive oil may protect against type 2 diabetes and possibly even Alzheimer's disease. So what makes extra virgin olive oil better for us than other types of cooking oil? The answer lies in its composition. Alongside its fat, extra virgin olive oil also contains many natural substances such as polyphenols. Polyphenols occur naturally in plants. They've been linked to many health benefits such as reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease and cognitive disorders. The reason extra virgin olive oil contains such high levels of polyphenols is because it's produced by simply crushing olives. More processed versions of olive oil such as light olive oil or spreads don't contain as many of these polyphenols. This is because to create these requires more processing resulting in most of the polyphenols being lost. So what about other cooking oils? Most other cooking oils such as sunflower oil or rapeseed oil are made from seeds. Seeds are very difficult to extract oil from so they need to be heated and the oil is extracted with solvents. This means that most of the polyphenols in seeds are lost during production. Seed oils are widely regarded as being toxic for our health along with sugar and refined white wheat flour products. Coconut oil is often advocated as a healthy oil to use when cooking because it does well at high heats. Then use extra virgin olive oil for salads or to drizzle over a meal. One point to note about extra virgin olive oil is that it seems to be more effective when eaten as part of the Mediterranean diet. The Mediterranean diet is high in vegetables, fruits, legumes, grains, fish and olive oil. The Mediterranean diet is linked with lower risk of many chronic diseases including cancer, cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's disease. This might make the extra price of extra virgin olive oil worth paying for. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email on screen. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.